0: assassins to another episode of the dark assassins podcast the show that dives deep into not just technology but the concepts software and procedures behind it all and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it as always i'm your host the dark assassin i hope that uh this little beginning rant spiel thing comes off as relatable but do you guys have that that goal or, like, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the, the proper phrase is. It's there, There's different, like, things depending on um, the hobby, I guess, that you're in. But basically this idea that there's something that if you attain this thing in whatever hobby or... Um, whatever you're into like that's when you know that like you've made it and you can be very happy which ironically once you attain that thing something else kind of takes the role of that um, but like just kind of like thinking about it, like coming to coming to mind, like there's like from the car culture perspective, there's like that dream car or something that uh, car people aspire to have. Like they aspire to have the that Lamborghini or something, or they aspire to have that McLaren or something, some high end car. Um, and then you'll have like musicians that maybe they're trying to chase uh, some kind some expensive instrument or something, um, or like classic computer enthusiasts that are like hunting like super old and rare retro computers like an Apple One or the original Macintosh or Commodore 64, VIC-20, some, something like that maybe. Um, and then like the sneaker heads that are, you know, after like the super rare and expensive shoes, that kind of a thing. So for me, I would say personally, the, that kind of thing for me in my home lab was VLANs, because it was always this thing that I wanted to try to achieve, but every time I tried, I never really succeeded, and it was always something that was like just within reach, but I was never able to obtain it, and it was always something like, if I can get that, then I feel like I will have made it. Um, But we're going to get into that uh, later in the episode. But first, uh, kind of on the topic of VLANs, um, let's get into this week's trivia question. So for this week, how many IP addresses are there in a slash 24 network? So, in other words, if your network has a net mask of 255.255.255.0, how many addressable IP addresses are there? And that is your trivia question for the week. So, I hope that none of you are actually using technology this week because. My goodness, the number of critical vulnerabilities and exploits that were found and patched was quite, quite, uh, quite incredible. The number was quite large. Um, I'm going to cover a few, just kind of a brief rapid fire here, um, just to kind of give you the scope. So, first of all, last week, we talked about iOS 17 already being on iOS 17.0.2. Well, we just ticked up another one to iOS 17.0.3 to patch another actively exploited vulnerability. So good job, Apple. Um, thanks for patching the vulnerabilities. Um, would have been appreciated if they didn't exist, um, but as anyone that's a software developer knows, um, sometimes those things can be hard to catch. Um, but on the topic of actively exploited vulnerabilities, we had Atlassian's Confluence being hit with a uh, actively exploited zero-day vulnerability. Um, so just as a refresher, a zero-day is a um, this idea of an exploit that's actively being being exploited that for some set amount of time that nobody knows about hence the zero day, because it's zero days since it's been discovered. It hasn't been discovered. So, yeah, those are definitely not good. Um, So that happened. Um, The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency um, discovered two security flaws in its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, um, specifically a JetBrains TeamCity authentication bypass vulnerability, Um, Um, So obviously, any time that you can bypass authentication, that's obviously fantastic to see. And then we have uh, Microsoft Windows CNG Key Isolation Service Privilege Escalation Vulnerability. So uh, obviously, another one that you love to see, a privilege escalation, that's always fantastic. Um, So two pretty big vulnerabilities there. And then the last one I want to touch on is from Cisco. Uh, They rolled out a patch for a critical vulnerability um, that allows an unauth- un- unauthenticated remote attackers to sign in to susceptible systems using, wait for it, hard-coded credentials. <laughs> I mean, this is like I mean you you don't even have to have any kind of degree in cybersecurity or any kind of certifications or anything like that. If you're a developer, one of the most basic things that you're taught in pretty much any kind of anything that relates to like authentication and like passwords and that kind of thing do not hard-code credentials into your code. That's like maybe not rule number one, but when it comes to like uh, dealing with accounts and whatnot, it's pretty high up there if it's not number one. That's something you just don't do. You don't hard-code credentials into the binary. Now, the exception to this rule is when you are testing and debugging, which according to Cisco is the reason why this was there in the first place. Uh, according to Cisco, this was due to the presence of a static use of static user credentials for the root account that is usually reserved for the reserved uh, for use during development. Um, which this is actually understandable and kind of common. To see happen because it's kind of a pain to have to go through uh, the whole process of, you know, properly doing uh, like credential management and whatnot. So, just like hard coding some credentials um, that can make your life debugging easier. Uh, But obviously, once you go and release that out into production, uh, you need to make sure those are removed uh, because uh, one thing we talked about. On a previous episode, I believe, was why you shouldn't compile your code with debug flags because it ha- it adds a bunch of extra information into the binary that someone that try- that's trying to reverse engineer your program can pick up on and helps them reverse engineer it easier. Um, so, this would be something else that someone trying to reverse engineer the code base could easily identify and exploit to their advantage, having hard coded credentials inside there and it gets better because it says an attack they say that an attacker could exploit this vulnerability by using the account to log into the affected system and a successful exploit could allow the attacker to log into the affected system and execute arbitrary commands as the root user so um yeah so basically Um, They can do whatever they want on the system, and it will be executed without question. So um, we've talked before on the podcast. That's pretty much the absolute worst-case scenario when it comes to exploits and vulnerabilities. Um, So, yeah, that was a a pretty rough week for um, all kinds of technology companies. Um, But on the bright side— Um, These things are being patched, and um, those patches are being pushed out to users. Um, So if you or your company or your business or your employer or wherever uses any of these um, softwares or technologies, you definitely want to make sure that you are up to date on your patches. And with that, I think we can roll into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, this is something that you definitely want to do, and that is verify install scripts before you run them. Now, this is mostly looking at, like, Linux and other Unix-based systems like macOS or BSD, um, but it is also applicable to Windows since Windows does have some scripts that you can run, like PowerShell scripts or batch scripts that can install things. Um, so you want to verify your the scripts that you're going to be using to install things before you actually, you know, run them. And specifically I'm looking at you um wget pipe to sudo bash uh, <laughs> to run the script. Now the reason why that is really bad, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, maybe not you're not Linux um, users and you're not like super familiar with Linux and Unix systems, um, the, the idea of wget pipe to sudo bash is basically you use wget, which is a tool that allows you to pull um, a file from a website, for instance, and then pipe to sudo bash is essentially saying, okay, so I'm going to pull down this file, in this case it would be an executable script from the internet, and I'm going to send that to sudo bash to execute. And what that means is Bash is the like the environment, the terminal kind of environment um, that's de- I, I guess default um, in air quotes there on Linux systems. Although they, there's a bunch of different kinds of shells. There's Bash. There's sh. There's fish. There's there's a lot of them. Um, so some people have their preferences. Um, Zsh. There's there's a lot of them. Um, but Bash is kind of the I don't know about most common, but it's it's pretty well-known. Anyway, the pseudo portion of that is basically I wanna run this with super user privileges or I wanna run this as root, um, or I wanna run this as the, the highest level administrator on the system. So basically what that means is I run this command, maybe it prompts me for my password if I haven't entered it recently, um, and then the command, everything in that script will execute without question. And you might be able to see why that might be a bad idea. Because if you haven't verified everything that that script is trying to do, and you just pipe it directly to sudo bash in this case, you basically are taking whatever's in this script that you found on the internet and running it with pseudo privileges without even looking at it, which um, not a smart idea because if there's any kind of malware or keyloggers or ransomware or anything built into that script, you just gave it full permissions and full access to install itself and do whatever the heck it wants because you gave it root permissions or pseudo permissions. Um, Same thing is true on Windows. If you download a PowerShell or batch script to run or install something and then you just blindly click run as administrator, yeah, that's not a smart idea either. so whenever you're dealing with any kind of install scripts or just any kind of scripts in general that you're getting from the internet you want to give them a once-over just to look at them and make sure that there's nothing funky going on Um, make sure that it's not trying to install anything weird or anything like that now in most cases if you're using a reputable guide or you're using a link from a GitHub repo, a well-known, well-established GitHub repo that has a link to pipe their install script to bash, for example. Generally, you're probably safe because how vetted it is uh, with it being open source and all the eyes on it and how well-known it is, but it's just good practice to give it a once-over just to make sure everything looks good and you can understand what's going on. Because at the end of the day, these install scripts and scripts in general are just command line arguments that someone wrote into a script to all execute at once. So if you really wanted to, you could manually go through every single one of the steps in the script and do it yourself Um, the script is just an automated way uh, to do all that for you Um, so it's definitely something that you should you know take a look at look over um, before you use any kind of install scripts like this just just give them a once over to make sure that everything is good Um, and that is your cybersecurity tip for the week so, I beginning of this episode, I mentioned VLANs, and but before we get specifically into the VLAN stuff that I tried and just VLANs in general, I think we should cover some some other things. Um, that being, what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week? So before I pretty much spent every waking hour of my free time um, trying to deal with VLANs. I decided to get power over Ethernet, or PoE, working on my Raspberry Pi. Now, I have a Raspberry Pi 3B+, so it's, I guess, technically, since the Raspberry Pi 5 is out, well, I guess not technically out, but coming out, it's a couple generations old at this point, um... But one thing to note about the Raspberry Pis is while they can do PoE, um, they don't have it enabled by default. You have to buy, like, a separate adapter. They, they call it a hat for it. So basically what you do is you kind of stick it on the, the GPIO pins. And the I think there's, like, specific power over Ethernet pins as well um, that it just kind of sits on and allows you um, to do power over Ethernet. And what this allows you to do essentially is, is if you're not familiar with how power of your Ethernet works, basically what you can do is you can just plug in an Ethernet cable from your switch into your... Uh, into your Raspberry Pi or your IoT device or whatever device that you that has power over Ethernet. And in addition to giving it networking access, it will also give it power so it can actually turn on. Um, so the really nice thing about this is you only have to run one cable to your device. You don't have to have a separate power cable running to the device as well as the uh, Internet cable or the Ethernet cable. So the, the reason, the way, or I guess the use case that this really gets used in a lot is like for security cameras because it's really nice and convenient just to be able to run that single ethernet cable to the camera plug it in and it has power and internet um so very nice use case there um but it's something i wanted to do with the raspberry pi 2. um so i busted out the old brocade switch that i acquired recently and got to work enabling uh, Power over Ethernet for the Raspberry Pi, which honestly was pretty darn simple. I think it was like a couple commands through the the command line interface on the switch. And just like that, I had my Raspberry Pi running on Power over Ethernet, and I could remove that extra power cable from my rack to kind of clean up the rat's nest uh, near the... (laughs) the power strip that I have at the bottom, um, so that was nice. Um, and the other nice thing about power over Ethernet is, I guess, specifically with the brocade switch, but I would assume this is probably a, a feature of most enterprise switches as well, As uh, you can see the power draw of each one of the devices hooked up um, with the PoE, so I can get a a monitor of how much power the Raspberry Pi is drawing, which I don't know if I was necessarily surprised by it, but it was drawing like 6.5-ish watts just kind of sitting there, which I was... I don't know if I was what I was really expecting to be honest. I don't know if I was expecting it to be more or for it to be less. Uh, but the one thing that is kind of interesting about that is I have a, a Dell, um, I think it's a, what is it? It's a 50 Optiplex 5050 Micro, I think. And from what I remember doing um, tests on that for power consumption with my kilowatt. I'm pretty sure that only draws like 7 watts or something like that. And obviously with it being x86, it, it um, has a lot more power and it also has a lot more RAM behind it too. So it has a lot more, you know, compute power and whatnot. Now granted, um, when the Raspberry Pi ramps up, uh, it's going to draw a lot less power than when that uh, Mike Dell computer, uh, ramps up. But at the same time, um, the Dell computer still has a lot more power to it. But anyway, I I just thought that was kind of interesting to see. Um, and of course, I made sure to document the whole thing, the whole process of doing the Power over Ethernet on my home lab wiki. Um, so whenever, or if ever, I decide to add more PoE devices, I can just refer to that easy guide there and uh, get everything set up. Um, now, speaking of getting everything set up with the home lab wiki, another thing that I was trying to do with the home lab wiki was VLANs. So, yes, we're finally getting to VLANs. So, I have talked about VLANs in the past on the podcast. And for me personally, VLANs has always been basically the bane of my existence when it comes to my home lab journey. So I've talked about other things that have been the bane of my existence, specifically uh, graphics programming when it comes to software development. That's kind of been the bane of my existence there. And VLANs was basically the bane of my existence when it came to my home lab and just networking in general. Because every time that I tried to configure and set up VLANs, uh, I always failed, and generally failed in spectacular fashion. Um, again, living up to my name of a code monkey who occasionally breaks stuff in his home lab. Yeah, whenever I would try something with VLANs, I would break something in my home lab. Um, generally, uh, quite quite terribly. Um, and the thing that was really frustrating about it was I understood the concepts, and I understood the theory behind VLANs, why you use them, and how they work. So I basically had uh, the academic education without the actual practical use case so I, it, it, in other words, I basically had no idea what I was doing because I'd never actually done it before. So this is a another instance um, where just because you have the academic smarts, that does not necessarily translate to real knowledge on how to actually do something. Um, so the thing, the thing of it was, was obviously I have talked about VLANs before on the podcast, and I understood the ideas behind it and the idea that a vlan the point of a vlan is to segment networks, um, in essence, break break up your switch into smaller switches um, or segment your network into, say, your, your servers, your clients, your Wi-Fi devices, your IoT devices. Um, if you're talking from like a corporate structure, each one of your different departments would probably have their own VLAN. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of really good use cases for VLANs from not only Uh, a security perspective like if you have iot devices that are pretty sketchy that you don't want phoning home vlans are a perfect solution for that it's also really good at cutting down network chatter so certain devices can be pretty chatty um, in terms of how much network traffic they send out and the other thing too is when you have a large network with a lot of devices you're just in general going to have a lot of network congestion with all of those devices trying to access various things at the same time so if you can use vlans to segment it and separate everything out you have a lot less well yeah, one you have more networks and the networks in theory have smaller numbers of devices on them so the amount of Chatter and traffic going on on those uh, individual networks is going to be less, which will be beneficial. Um, so there's a lot of use cases for VLANs and why they're, why enterprises use them, why corporations use them, and why a lot of home labbers use them, um, because they are a really good tool. Um, for segmenting your network and managing infrastructure and all that good stuff. And in addition to that, there's, there's some concepts with VLANs that you also have to understand, that specifically being the trunk access tag and untagged ports. Now, this is basically terminology for the same thing. It basically just... Uh, depends on if you're a Cisco person or if you're an, another type of switch person uh, because Cisco um, uses the tagged and access terminology where other types of uh, switch companies use tagged versus untagged. But in essence, it basically means the exact same thing. Um, and the, the point the, the main thing is here, the tagged and um, trunk ports basically just mean that VLAN information is sent through the port where untagged or access ports means that the VLAN information is stripped out before it is sent on to whatever device is connected to that port. Now, you might if you're not a uh, CCNA uh, certificate holder, or otherwise knowledgeable about VLANs, uh, you might be wondering um, why any of that matters. And and in case you weren't aware, CCNA is basically the Cisco certification. Um, I don't remember exactly what it stands for. I guess Cisco uh, something associate, I think, network associate something. I don't know. Basically, it's their certification that... There, I think, entry-level certification that basically just says you know Cisco essentially. Anyway, um, but a part of that uh, certification is you have to know VLANs. But tangent aside, um, getting back to why the trunk tagged access and untagged ports matter. Um, so if you have multiple VLAN aware devices, so you can think of this like your managed switches and some routers um specifically like an open set uh, a pf sense or an open sense or some other open wrt i think um other kinds of routers like that um will be vlan aware which means they are aware of vlans they understand the vlan uh ieee protocol number which i don't remember off the top of my head it Um, but basically they understand them. Whereas, say, your laptop or your phone or your desktop doesn't understand them. And the reason why this is important is because VLANs add additional information into the network packet, specifically four bytes of extra data into the network packet. Now, if you'll recall back to last week's episode, where we talked about bit packing, certain protocols like networking and all of the network stack um, is very particular about how the bits are supposed to be arranged. So if you send a packet to a network device that is malformed, it's not going to know what to do with it. So if it's expecting a packet and a certain type of packet, and the packet you send it has an additional four bytes stuck in the middle of it, it's not going to have any idea what to do with that packet and basically just do nothing with it. So basically what this translates to is uh, you don't get internet or you don't get network access. So obviously you want to make sure that your tagged uh, or trunked ports are assigned correctly. Um, and the in re- cases where you would want to assign a port as a tagged or trunked port. So you can think of this, like if you wanted to connect two switches together and you wanted to ensure that they can share VLAN information, that would be a suitable use case, um, And I I don't remember if I mentioned it, uh, but in case you have gotten this far and are still scratching your head on what VLAN is, it basically just means virtual LAN or virtual local area network. Um, So the really cool thing about them is you can have multiple headquarters, so imagine you have multiple corporate offices, either all across the country or all across the globe. The cool thing with VLANs is you can connect your networks together and assuming they're all using the same VLAN IDs, you can essentially have your network where your corporate office in, say, San Antonio, can connect to your corporate office in Detroit, and the devices on the on those networks that share the same VLAN IDs wouldn't be any of the wiser that they were. You know, separated by hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away. As far as they're concerned, they're all connected to the same switch. Um, so that's basically kind of how, how VLANs work uh, in a nutshell. Um, so really cool stuff that you can do with them. Um, and this I- the idea of connecting multiple switches together like that um, is where you would have a, a tagged or a trunk port uh, to be able to send that VLAN information along. Uh, and then in contrast, the access port and the untagged port is basically what you would have for your non-VLAN-aware devices. Um, so picture your your desktop, your laptop, um, other devices that would plug into the switch but don't have to deal with VLAN, so they would be considered VLAN-unaware, and therefore you'd want to make sure that their port is untagged or access. So that's kind of the nutshell of VLANs um, and kind of the theory and the uh, whatnot behind them. And this stuff I understood and I knew and like it made sense to me. But then whenever I would try to actually implement it, it would always fail and blow up in my face, and in practice, I could never get it to work and was really frustrating. Because if you kind of understand the concept of something, but you can't like do the implementation aspect, at least to me, that's something that's really frustrating. Now, some people, they might not care as long as they understand how it works, that's fine, and they are go on their merry way and be happy. But for me, I don't think... When when talking about like a technical concept like this, like VLANs or like programming, um, for me, you in my opinion, you don't truly understand the concept or the topic unless you can implement it. Because yeah, you can talk all the shop you want. But when the rubber hits the road and something needs to be done, if you can't get it done, do you really know how to do it or the the whole idea behind it, right? Maybe that's just how I think and maybe that's not how you think, but that's how I interpreted it. So for me, um, kind of talking about VLANs and this understanding that I had about them in a way kind of seemed... Fake or false in the sense that, like, I I understood the theory and the concept, but never actually implemented them. Um, I I could talk the shop, but when you know time came for rubber to hit the road, I would be like a fish out of water. Um, so, with this new brocade switch, I decided that I would give VLANs another crack. I would give them another shot. I don't know how many time to- how many attempts I was up to at this point. It was probably at least. My, I would say it was at least my third attempt, if not more. I tried on other switches before, and it just never worked. Um, but anyway, I figured I'd give it another shot. So I basically took the the idea and the term of HomeLab to its actual core roots and using it to its fullest potential, emphasizing the lab aspect of it, as a way to just play around with test and experiment, break things, and just doing it all for the sake of learning. Which, in a nutshell, is basically what a home lab is. Um, and then there's the, the other side, which kind of gets roped into home lab, which is like the home prod or the home production thing. Which is where you kind of have all your services running that basically run your infrastructure your network like maybe your pie holes your vpns that kind of stuff basically the stuff that you just have running that you don't touch that actually serve a purpose rather than the stuff that you kind of play around with an experiment um so i pretty much spent a solid three days like i mentioned once i got the the poe working on the raspberry pi up until the recording of this podcast episode i pretty much spent every waking hour of free time that I had working on VLANs and playing around with them and trying to figure them out, which here comes some irony. I spent a solid three days trying to get VLANs to work, trying to understand, you know, the commands that go behind it, how to to configure things, all that stuff. And I was While I was failing quite a bit at times, I was enjoying it. I was learning, and it was a fantastic experience documenting everything. It was pretty great. Um, But at the same time, if I was, say, assigned a school project or a school assignment to do the exact same thing, I would be kicking and screaming the whole time and be hating every waking second of it, which is kind of the irony because if I I want to learn something and it's it's me giving the motivation and drive to do it, I am all for it and super happy to learn. Um, But if it's something I'm kind of forced to do for like a school project or whatever, I'm just not interested in the subject. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic that I always find myself in. Uh, Maybe some of you are like that too. I don't know. Uh, but it's something that I always found, like if it's something that I really want to do, I'll be happy to spend hours and hours and days on end trying to get it, trying to learn it and figure it out. Uh, but if the roles were reversed and I was kind of forced to do it, I would have absolutely no interest. Uh, even if, if it was something that I had the idea about, I would be more than happy to sink Days of my own time in. But anyway, that kind of tangent aside, uh, let's get into how things actually went. So, the first night, um, basically, I failed spectacularly. It was pretty much more of the same um, of what I was used to with VLANs, just nothing worked. Now, in fairness, I did create a heck of a lot of VLANs, um, quite a bit of them, created a bunch of them. deleted a bunch of them. Um, But that was pretty much it. I mean, on the Brocade switch and on like Cisco and other switches, creating VLANs is trivial. I mean, if you're using like a GUI interface, it's like click, click, and you're done. Uh, On the command line, it was literally... Uh, specifically for the brocade, and I think Cisco syntax is similar but not quite the same. It was like VLAN and the ID. So say VLAN ten, and then pick an ether, pick a port on the switch and assign it to the VLAN. And bada bing, bada boom, you created a VLAN. Congratulations! But just because you created a VLAN doesn't mean it's functional. So that's pretty much how far I got, so I I, kind of swung some punches, but at the end of the day, I got beat down pretty bad and kicked to the curb and got my butt handed to me uh, by VLANs yet again. Um, But then came the second night, which actually I guess I'll go back to uh, creating the VLANs. So I was able to create them, um, but I had the main issues that I was running into was I couldn't get internet access on any of them, and there was no inter VLAN communication whatsoever going on. Um, So basically that idea being if I created two VLANs, they were not able to talk to each other at all. Um, And similarly, if it was on one of those VLANs, couldn't access the internet. So on the one hand though, I guess if I was trying to set up a VLAN for IOT devices that Try to reach out to who knows where and try to phone home and all that garbage. I guess I would have succeeded pretty darn well in making sure that they were isolated and not able to to get out. Um, but obviously, not the um, desired outcome that I was looking for. So I was again pretty frustrated at that result, and I. I Gave it up for the night. I cut my losses. I, I was not stubborn and stayed up till like 3 a.m. like I have done before on projects. I actually went to bed at a reasonable time. Um, but then comes the second night, which the second night was actually pretty great. I had a mini breakthrough of sorts. Now, not everything was completely working, but I had got things to kind of start working. I mean at this point I had created so many VLANs that I could have probably created and configured a VLAN with my eyes closed um because of how many I was doing but th- the big thing that I was I think missing was the router aspect because the switching aspect on the switch Uh, creating the VLAN on there and setting up a a router interface to be able to route in between VLANs was pretty easy. The issue kind of came with getting the broader internet access and then restricting access between VLANs and kind of the more nitty-gritty stuff. Um, So I did kind of have a mini-breakthrough. Things were kind of starting to to work. And then day three happened. (laughs) Day three was basically me starting out, going through the documentation I had written so far, which was kind of a hodgepodge of me th- just word vomiting into the into the home lab wiki that I have and anything configuration wise that I had done, um, just so I wouldn't forget it. So basically the beginning of day three, was basically going through the steps that I had laid out and making sure I could replicate you know, the success that I had done on day two. And things started out pretty well until somehow I managed to completely brick my PFSense instance. I don't exactly know what I did to brick it because once I bricked it, I tried to revert back by undoing things that I did, but for whatever reason after that, I had absolutely no internet. DNS was completely unresponsive, and it just no internet whatsoever. And um, if you guys remember a couple weeks back, I mentioned I had... um, wrote a script to check in on my home network to see if my network was down. And uh, I was getting notifications every 15 minutes for a solid few hours (laughs) while I tried to troubleshoot this issue. Like clockwork, every 15 minutes, there's another notification. So that was a little aggravating. But thankfully, my backups saved my bacon yet again, because I restored from a backup because obviously I didn't have the forethought um, and I wasn't smart enough to think, you know what, maybe I should take a snapshot of my PFSense instance right now so in case I royally mess something up, I can just quickly roll back to a working instance. But obviously I wasn't that smart and wasn't thinking that that far ahead, so I had to use a backup that I had. And here's where another kind of hiccup happened because I have my backup set to run at the beginning of the month. So at the beginning of the month, my backup a backup job kicks off to back up my virtual machines. So I figured my PFSense config would be pretty up to date. But I realized something the box that my pfSense vm runs on is on a slightly different schedule than my normal backup schedule so rather than the first day of the month it runs i think on the first saturday of the month or something like that basically just to not have quite as much network congestion of all the backups happening at the same time um So, my backup wasn't quite up to date, specifically the changes that I made to WireGuard, which I I talked about a couple weeks ago of me switching my VPN solution from OpenVPN to WireGuard. And I was really scratching my head here because I was like, I literally just restored to a working PFSense instance yet I'm still getting pings that my internet is down even though I have internet what the heck is going on and then I finally looked at the firewall rules and realized oh and I found my issue and fixed it and whatnot but then after that I I made the smart move and created the snapshot so getting back to VLANs here so the way that I was I, I finally managed to get uh, VLANs and internet access working was to configure it in PFSense. So I had to make sure that I had the each one of the VLANs, um, an instance of them configured inside of PFSense. So for example, if I wanted to create VLAN 10 um, on my switch, I would have to create VLAN 10 on my PFSense router. And then in that, I would have to give Uh, the VLAN 10 an interface. So I'd have to give an IP address within the IP address range that I set for that interface. So for example, if I created VLAN 10 uh, with the IP address range of 10.10.10.0 slash 24, for example, I would have to give the PFSense box an IP address within that range. Um, Back to the trivia question, there is an X number of possible IP addresses that I could pick, do you know which one it is? Little refresher there in case you forgot the trivia question. Um, So I'd have to pick an IP address within that range. Um, But there was some additional configuration that I had to work on and tweak because while yes, PFSense is VLAN aware, and it could absolutely do all of the inner VLAN traffic routing for me. The problem is that would be a major bottleneck because PFSense is running with a single gigabit connection to my Switch, where the Switch has way more switching and routing capacity built into it in addition to having a specific hardware-level um Processing to do all the routing and switching on the switch itself. I mean, that's literally what it's made for. Um, so there would be—I could potentially see a decent amount of bottlenecking if I had a lot of inner VLAN traffic going on because everything would have to congest down to that single 1-gigabit pipe, right? I talked um, a few weeks ago how I ran into an issue trying to test my 10-gig connection to my NAS— where I was bottlenecked to gigabit speeds because two of the devices I was trying to test with had to go through a single 1-gig connection to my other switch that had the 10-gig connection. So this would basically be the same thing, where if there was a lot of inner vlan traffic going on, they would all be trying to go through this single connection to the PFSense box in order to route properly which obviously is not ideal and could cause bottlenecks so I wanted to ensure that all of the inner VLAN routing traffic would happen on the switch itself now by default this is not a problem but the issue is once you invoke pf sense into the mix then you have to add a little more uh configuration so basically what I what ended up fixing it for me was when i created the dhcp server for the vlan on pfsense so when i connect a say a, a desktop computer into a one of the ports that's on a certain vlan it'll actually get an ip address which is kind of important so I don't have to manually go setting IP addresses um, which generally I mostly do for my servers anyway just because I want static IP addresses in other words the IP addresses that never change Um, but for a device that I just want to plug in to connect it would be nice uh, to not have to do that Um, so I wanted DHCP but the problem was by default that DHCP sets the PFSense router as the router. Now this isn't an issue per se, but the problem is if I, because it's set as the router, if I want to go to say a different VLAN, I have to go through the PFSense box in order to go back to the switch to the other VLAN. So not using the switch for the inner VLAN routing. So basically what I had to do was go into PFSense for the DHCP settings for that given interface and make sure the VLAN uh, DHCP server, the gateway was set to the IP of the switch on that VLAN rather than the IP of PFSense on that VLAN. And that inevitably fixed the issue. Um, So that was... Uh, basically kind of the main issue that I, f- that I faced, uh, as far as inter-VLAN routing. And then the other thing that I also had to figure out was, so this is kind of where I took a couple steps back because on the second night when I kind of had my mini breakthrough, I didn't realize that initially. So all the routing was just going through PFSense, which in the one hand was nice because PFSense could easily handle all of the inner VLAN blocking so if I didn't want a specific VLAN access to any other VLAN I could easily set that in the PFSense firewall rules Uh, but since I was now doing all of the routing in between VLANs on the switch that no longer worked anymore because I could set all the firewall rules I wanted on PFSense but since the traffic isn't getting to PFSense it doesn't do anything Um, so I had to set up an access control list or an ACL uh, for each one of the VLANs that I wanted to restrict the access to because by default any VLAN has access to any other VLAN so if you want to say restrict a certain VLANs access to other VLANs or if you don't want to give it access to anything you have to implement an access control list Um, now this can be kind of complicated a little daunting but if you're any what familiar with like ip tables or configuring any kind of firewalls through like a command line this probably would be pretty easy for you to figure out um i did find a guide online of someone that put it together pretty comprehensive acl to really limit a vlan's access um So I was able to kind of play around with that and experiment with it. And basically what I was able to get it to do was allow it access to the Internet, but basically not access to any other VLAN, um, which that would be generally pretty ideal um, for, say, like a a client um, VLAN, like if you wanted to have clients or if you wanted basically people not to have access to all of your home lab goodies. Uh, You just wanted to give them access to the Internet and be done with it. And then, obviously, if you wanted um, access to – if you didn't want to give them any access to anything, like, say, IoT devices, um, in addition to configuring the PFSense firewall, which I guess by default – Uh, It would just deny everything, so you wouldn't really have to necessarily do anything on that front. Um, But then you'd have to configure an ACL to basically deny access um, to all of the different VLANs. But you do have to be careful with that, though, because if you just do like a drop all, then it's not going to be able to get any kind of like DHCP. um, So it's not going to be able to get an IP address. And so you you do have to do a little bit of configuring, um, but it's not super, super complicated once you kind of get the hang of it. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my, my story so far uh, with VLANs. I've, I'm, I I'm super stoked that I finally was able to get them configured and running and Man, you should have seen the smile on my face when when I finally got, you know, got all that working and from my main server network to reach out to a network that was not on my server network, a completely different VLAN and was able to get that traffic rolling through and then once I started trying to get even fancier with, you know, only permitting certain VLANs access to other VLANs and really trying to nail down permissions, seeing all that work Oh man, it, it was it was pretty awesome. Um, and then of course, the whole fact that I was, was basically documenting everything as I went along was definitely super helpful because honestly, right now, if you told me to create a VLAN with certain access controls, I would not be able to do it <laughs> without my, my wiki that I wrote up because some of it... Um, there's, there's just a lot to it, a lot of like individual steps and commands that you have to type in that I, I couldn't necessarily remember, but that's, that was, that was basically the point of that I made the wiki, right? Was, so I'd have this, this ground source of truth that I could always go back to, uh, when I wanted to configure something or know how to do something, I could just go to my wiki that I made And then be able to reference it right away and be able to implement it without any issues and be able to be up and running pretty quickly rather than having to go back through these three long days just to configure a single vlan how i want it to um so that that is that is something that i'm i'm very happy about now another thing that actually i was kind of thinking about before I started recording this podcast. Was maybe this could be a good another good another installment to the blog? It would be a good, another good blog post because one thing in trying to research for you know how to configure VLANs and whatnot with the the Brocade switch and PF Sense, I found the, the the guides weren't really there. Um, pretty much I I kind of had to like piece individual things together kind of as I went along maybe my uh, internet searching skills aren't as good as yours and you could easily find it in one search um, but I was not able to really find a single comprehensive guide that walks you through the step of like properly configuring a VLAN with pfSense and all this stuff in the way that that I wanted. Um, so I was thinking maybe that could be something that I could do. Um, that would obviously be a, a decent amount of work, and that'll be uh, a project at some point that I may or may not t- t- accomplish. But I figured maybe it would be a, a decent a decent blog post as far as content was. I think it'd be definitely definitely quality, uh, but just the the, the fact of me actually doing it, um, and writing it up and and all that would be, would be the the main I guess hurdle or roadblock. Um, so basically just me doing it, um, but, but anyway that yeah that was just something that I was thinking about. But that was uh, was VLANs, so I feel a lot better now. Uh, being able to talk about VLANs now that I've actually gone through the actual steps of creating them and getting them working, um, I kind of feel like maybe I have a little bit of merit to what I'm saying (laughs) rather than just spewing out the textbook regurgitated nonsense that I could never actually implement if I tried. um, I've actually been able to do it. Um, so, so that was something that I, w- I was very, very pleased, very happy with. Um, and I guess this is kind of—I guess you could consider our another installment in our kind of hit-and-miss networking series that we've done. Um, I know we've had a few episodes that, like— purely focus on networking related topics and i guess this is kind of another installment in that um so yeah hopefully if this if any of you out there have struggled with vlans or struggled with other concepts um in networking or programming or home labbing in general or or really any subject matter it doesn't have to be anything it related it could be uh you know, math, physics, biology, you know, whatever it is, um, you can do it. I have faith in you. Um, I, like I mentioned, I struggled with VLANs a lot. I tried a lot, failed a lot, uh, but I didn't let that stop me. I kept pushing, kept researching things, kept, kept trying to learn, and eventually I was able to figure it out. So whatever you're trying to struggle to learn, you can get there. I have faith in you. You can do it. Um, so with that, I think we will conclude with our trivia question for the week, which ties really nicely into this network theme we've been kind of doing the entire podcast, which is how many addressable IP addresses are there in the slash in a/24 network? So, if you're thinking as a net mask, how many IP addresses are there in a .2, in a 255.255.255.0 net mask? Now, if you said two hundred and fifty-four addresses, congratulations! You are correct, and you got this week's trivia question correctly. Um, hopefully, some of you did. Um, I know we've—I don't—I'm not exactly sure how deep we've gone on subnets and different types of networks and sizes. I'm pretty sure we've talked about them before, um, but I don't know if we've necessarily gone super, super deep. Um, but that is something tying this back to VLANs. Um, that you do have to to think about when you're configuring your VLANs on how big you want your networks to be, which if you really want to – if you only have like a, a super small range of IP addresses that you can actually work with, unlike uh, a home network situation where you can kind of pick whatever the heck you want, um, if you are limited to the number of IP addresses that you can have, um, selecting your subnet or whatever your slash – network addresses, so slash 24, slash 16, slash... 22 slash 30 there's there's a bunch of them there's 32 of them um, or you know your net mask there um, you really have to kind of iron out how many IP addresses you need um, in order to properly configure that but maybe that's a topic for another podcast episode um, if people are if you're interested in that definitely reach out to me at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. also if you have any other uh, topics or ideas for future episodes you can sh- uh, reach out to me there and if you have any questions about this episode, uh, VLANs, or any kind of topic or question for this episode, you can also reach out to me at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. And that's going to do it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, Like, share, uh, subscribe, you know, all that good stuff. Um, And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.